The Real Resilience Podcast. This episode of the Press Play Podcast has been a long time in reaching you, and for that I apologise. Not that I've been idle, what with the website, the shop, the free PDF downloads, the volume of machines I'm seeing through the door, the YouTube channel and the webinars. Oh, did I not mention the webinars? We're now running a bi-monthly webinar now. Each one is on an aspect of real-to-real ownership. We've covered audio lineup, braking systems and fault-finding techniques. And the next one is on Saturday the 31st of July and is about the stuff no real-to-real machine can do without. Tape. The what, why and how of tape to be exact. What companies are making new tape? What colour leader tape you should use? Why do I get print through? Why does my tape shed? How do I go about baking it? How do I know what tape is best for my machine? That's just some of the points we'll be covering in the 90 minutes. We'll have a Q&A too, so you can ask your questions. And I'll do my worst at answering them. You can send them to me in advance if you wish. You can send them to resiliencewebinars at gmail.com. It's own dedicated email address, resiliencewebinars at gmail.com. I've got a few questions already and I'll welcome one from you. Booking on the webinar is easy. Just go to eventbrite.co.uk. That's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot co.uk and search for Real to Real or Open Real and that should find it. But remember, no spaces in the Real to Real or Open Real. It's all one word, Real to Real or Open Real. And I said that should find it. Find the Press Play podcast on SoundCloud and our YouTube channel. Just search for Real Resilience. So, to our featured interview. This episode is part two of a two-parter on MCI tape machines. In part one, we heard from Thunderbird analogue studio owner Thomas Yearsley about his MCI machines and why there was so much love for them. My guest in this episode is Graham Nystrom of Rope Room Studio based in Astoria, Oregon. He has a JH24, or nearly one, because, as you'll hear, it's both a work in progress and a labour of love to get his machine back up and running. Graham is well equipped to do this, being a man of many talents, a guitarist and pianist, working in live sound and as a recording engineer for bands and venues. He also works in a medium I hold dear, radio, being the technical director of no less than three radio stations. We start on how he got into using MCI machines. I think as a musician I always wanted to be able to record myself and so embracing that part of the music process has been with me since I first started learning a guitar and borrowing maybe like a Marantz four-track cassette recorder or something in the early 90s and the local budget studio had maybe a Tascam reel-to-reel. I had one of the first Echo audio interfaces for the computer so I could record at home. Uh, But there was something that I always really embraced about both the analog process and the sound. And so I bought a Tascam MS, a TSR-8, I've had a MSR-16, I've had an Otari 1-inch 8-track from the 70s. I think I tried again with a Tascam. But I got to a point where I was kind of done messing around with uh, prosumer-level analog equipment and thought, you know, if I'm going to spend any time or money investing in this stuff, you know, do what my grandfather always said, which was, save up and buy the best you possibly can afford and you'll never regret it. And so I started really doing the homework on what people like, uh, what's easy to work on, what has parts readily available, uh, because they do require maintenance. Uh, But 
sort of unequivocally, you know, based, ba mostly through surfing the gear sluts threads uh, about tape, it was kind. It all kind of came back to MCI over and over again, uh, and I think Studer has sort of a an affordability issue with me. And so I saw an MCI JH16 with the 114 transport come up on eBay, and it was a risk. You know, I didn't know the condition. I didn't check it out. I figured it would need a lot of work, and boy, did it need a lot of work. Um, but I've really enjoyed getting to know the machine from the power supply to the audio cards to the deck. You know, just every every aspect of it. I think it's it's just fun to for me to know that, um, but also just to know that this machine with its big input and output transformers and its history um, is just going to do everybody all sorts of favors in the studio sonically. Um, so I love the MCI tape machines. You beat me to my next question. What machine do you have? Yeah, so this is a late 70s. It's the non-choir version, which means I sort of tell clients just plan on not punching in a lot, uh, try to get whole takes of songs. And so the choir stands for Quiet Initiation of Record. It was a technology developed on their bias cards where they would sort of do a crossfade instead of a hard start and stop with the signal. And it made punch-ins uh, much more controllable and quiet and clean uh, and accurate. So that was kind of a step forward that MCI took uh, shortly after my machine was produced. But my machine does have the transformer inputs and outputs. It's got the 114 deck, which means it's got the DC motors instead of the AC motors. Uh, early JH-16s had AC motors, much like the JH-110s you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Um, I, I, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm a little bit in your hands. You're, you're the expert. I've, I'm really, apart from one JH-24 I worked on a while ago, this 110 came in with a massive uh, audio problems. It was uh, kicking around uh, on the right channel and, and splatting and what have you. It turned out to be capacitors and also completely re-soldering the uh, connectors on all of the audio boards and the motherboard, and that solved it all. But you're getting into AC-DC motors. I, I didn't know about that level. So that was please carry one of their on. Developments, yeah. you know, one of their developments that uh, happened along the way. So you've got your kind of pre, uh, pre and post that, and pre and post choir, uh, and then at some point transformers became less sexy, uh, and so they went with transformerless inputs and outputs as they moved into the JH24s, uh, and in the early 80s was when MCI uh, was bought out by Sony, I guess, and and they were kind of co-branded for a while, and so there was a lot of morphing of every machine throughout the company's life where, you know, if you get an early JH-16, it might have a different transport, or a, and same with the consoles too, you know, they kind of, without a lot of hard edges, introduced new features um, and revisions just as they produced the machines, as they went out the door. Your machine, you mentioned you've done some work on it. What condition was it in when you got it? It would power up couple of the LEDs, a couple of the lamps would come on, but it was so, it needed so much love from the power supply up. There's these pass transistors that will blow and it'll send your reels spinning, and so you just have to get your diode checker out and figure out which one blew and replace it, and you keep a drawer full of those 3055Hs, uh, and you kind of expect that to happen every now and then, but it's also kind of like a five minute fix too, if you know what to look for and where to find it. But yeah, so power supply rebuilds, chasing down a lot of bad solder joints, a lot of cold solder joints. That was one of the, you know, there's a couple of unfortunate things that happened in the M MCI manufacturing process, which is supposedly they would often leave the factory with cold solder joints. 
Um, I don't know if it was the recipe of solder they used or that they were using a wave printing solder machine or something, but that was never ideal and the Molex connectors were a cut corner that impacted their reliability and longevity, but that's a known issue and you just, you know, you resolder it or you, you, you do a workaround. And so a lot of these machines that have been around for 40 years plus have had some of those problems addressed by this stage, you know, and I think I got one that maybe just hadn't seen much of that maintenance throughout the years. Um, I've recapped every cap on the on every audio card on the channel strip boards on the motherboard on the uh, you know in the in the power supplies. So trying to get it back to stock, trying to get it to function like it did, you know, the day that it rolled out of the factory. As you were saying about all these issues, please don't think that was probably something on MCI's build quality. I mean, the machine, what is it, 40 years old at least? And and any piece of electronics is going to suffer from age-related. You mentioned you changed the caps on it. Of course, they're all going to uh, to fail over time. And uh, that's no disrespect to the MCI machine. You mentioned about the Molex connectors. And the thing that struck me about when I was working on the amps of the of, of both of them, both the JH24 and the, the 110, is that there seems to be with MCI both a simplicity with like those Molex connectors and the and the audio amp cards, the bias amp cards. You look at the circuit diagrams, there's not a lot to them. You you compare them to Studer's and perhaps even and Tascam's uh, machines and Atari's. But the sophistication, they actually, you know, the functions you get on the machine, the, the edit function is so smooth on it. It seems to be a strange combination of simplicity and complexity what's your take on that i think that's a great way to put it i think that different designers have different end goals and some of those goals may serve the musicality or the ease of use or you know and so do you want a machine that has a lot of of functions or do you want something that's a little bit more plug and play and easy to work on and forgiving Uh, and so i think mci like Neve was just very focused on the Sonics above everything else. Uh, and then also just the application in the studio. You know, they, they invented the autolocator, uh, which was a pretty big deal. The Otari that I mentioned that I had didn't have an autolocator and you just put little marks on the reel and you'd watch it spin <laughs> until you felt like you were close. And, uh, but that definitely, you know, changed the game. And so just so much innovation at the company. and. Ian, if it's okay to walk back, something I wanted to mention right from the top is that everything that I know about MCI, I want to pay homage to the gurus, Steve Sadler and Randy Blevins, both out of Nashville. And we lost Stephen um, just a year or two ago. And so Randy, you know, continues to be a great source of uh, institutional knowledge and technical support. Just want to pay tribute to those two who really are the ones who know the deal. Concerning words from my guest, Graham Nystrom, relating to the loss of knowledge of supporting the open reel format. It's something everyone with an interest in them should be concerned about. None of us are getting any younger, and we should all do our bit to pass our knowledge on. We'll hear more from Graham soon. Find Real Resilience on the web at realresilience.co.uk and on our Facebook page, Real Resilience. So what else have we been doing here at Real Resilience? Well, a project that started for my own use to support owners of machines was to compile a list of people and providers who are making new items for reel-to-reel machines, be it pinch rollers to reels to new meter displays. It doesn't matter what they are or where they are in the world. So I decided to expand on this and create a directory of providers, listing what they produce, indicative costs of these items in their own currency, and their web details to contact them. I haven't tested all the items I'll list and some will only be limited runs and perhaps not available in the future. 
But if you make accessories, replacement parts or upgrades to the machines we love, any reel-to-reel -reel machine by the way, then please drop me an email to realresilience at gmail.com and let me know what you make, how much it is and how you sell it and I'll happily include you in the directory. I make the entries free and I make it available on the Real Resilience website for downloads. I'm not going to be involved in the sales process or take commission. It's all free and any transactions will be between you and the seller. All I ask is the seller offers a professional service and buyers be realistic in your purchasing expectations as I know most of the people who are producing great products for our machines are doing so on a small scale and aren't like Amazon in their delivery methods. I've already added a number of entries mainly on products I have used and we'll get it on the website in time for the next webinar. Back to part two of our interview with MCI GH16 stroke 24 owner Graham Nystrom. The ceramic capstan, that's something that I always see on MCIs. It's uh, instead of this steel post, there's this sort of white, almost plastic looking thing sticking out there, which goes against the pinch roller. What's your take on that as a, over a, a steel one? I don't know that I have a strong opinion. Um, I do know that this one, you're not supposed to use alcohol to clean it. You're supposed to use um, something milder because it will make the tape leave some black marks on the capstan which doesn't really affect the performance but it just visually you know isn't isn't ideal uh, but I, I would say that that's a point of just a lack of experience for me um, to be able to say what the difference would be. And now there are any areas of MCIs you think that they're particularly prone to you know we get some machines USA all uh, riffer caps all going bang and uh, on spooling motors how about MCI? Any particular areas that you've been told, Graham, you must uh, check this, check that, or your MCI will just be a, a doorstop? Yeah, there's a there's one that's kind of a, a funny one because it feels a little bit like it's in urban legend territory. The the red sockets for the IC chips are are so called the dreaded red sockets, and if you see any red sockets, you got to replace them and or solder your ICs directly to, to the board. Uh, but Steven Sadler would always say, do that at your own peril. You know, he never thought that that was quite the Achilles heel that everyone else seemed to think that, you know, that would solve all your problems if you replaced all the red <laughs> sockets. But uh, Steven Sadler said, absolutely not. Don't touch them if you don't have a problem. Um, so it's just funny how, you know, one person's issues can lead to sort of yeah. a, a general consensus that this must be a problem for everyone. I know what you mean. It's, the other thing is you mentioned, like the, the one cure fits all, as though one magic change is going to return the machine to factory settings. Well, I'm afraid any machine, it's, it's 40, 50 years old, is going to have a multitude of little bits like that. And yeah, some people might have had the problem with the dreaded red sockets, but other people, their machine, it's run fine for years just with those in, hasn't it? Yeah, and you know, one of the things that was so great working with Stephen is he would say, always test. Like, don't just guess. You know, don't don't start swapping things just because you think you should. Test, and then you'll know, and then you won't waste your time. And he'd always say, always call me too. Don't you know? Don't struggle in the dark without, because he'll tell you which resistor it is. You know, he already knows before you ask the question. Stephen is missed, not just by me. I'm sure. That's that's great advice. Yes, great advice. They're big machines. We obviously you've got a 16 track. There's 24. There's two. There's two track machines. What would you recommend for somebody who wants to get into using MCI? What's kind of let's call it an entry level machine because they are professional machines, aren't they? They're not things that you, you're going to really have in your in your living room as a as a lounge listener. They absolutely are. I think it's a little bit like buying a vintage motorcycle where you got to really want to make a hobby out of it, or you're going to want to buy like a Mara machine where the thing's been completely gone through 
and you're going to spend the money for it, but it's going to work flawlessly and sound great. I tend to enjoy the process of you know learning about the design of the audio components and figuring out how it all works and, and knowing that I put that effort and love into a historical machine to keep it functioning and to keep it serving its purpose and making great music, I get a lot of uh, personal satisfaction out of that. So I enjoy the, the many, many, many hours I've put into it, but I don't know if, if that's what everybody would be bargaining for. So you just got to really know how much work you want to put into the thing and then save up your dollars accordingly or your pounds. You mentioned about punch in, punch out. Uh, you're using this machine professionally? Yeah, so it's it's honestly just gotten to the point where it's working perfectly on 16 tracks. And my machine is a JH16, but it's a 24-track machine. So I've got the, you know, the three layers of eight meters. And you can put a 16-track head stack on there, and that's what everyone says is the best. You know, more, more track, more real estate, the better the sound. For me, it worked out great having 24 because I still need to get eight other channels working correctly. <laughs> but but 16 is enough to make an album with, uh, and so we you know we price the day rates accordingly, and and folks know what they're getting into uh, using a vintage tape machine like that, and and generally they know it and they love it. You're you're running a studio, and you're finding then there's a, a resurgence in interest in artists wanting to use tape fully just to to put their whole recording down or use tape as part of the process perhaps put it through uh, to get sort of process the bass or the drums uh, to get that sort of tape sound well the school I come from is to do your rhythm section to tape and any kind of acoustic guitars or vocals you would wait until you've imported the tape into digital and then do your overdubs that way so that you have that control Uh, and then you're also not having to deal with the limitations of the tape machine's ability to to punch accurately or cleanly, uh, so so getting those those rough tracks of drums, bass, electric guitars, uh, I think piano sounds amazing to tape. It all sounds great to tape, uh, but then if you can change the workflow when it comes time for the the nitty gritty overdubbing and editing, uh, it's nice to to move that over to to g- digital at that point. And how about what what tape are you using? What tape do you record with? Um, I just bought a couple of reels of Recording the Masters, uh, which is the French company, I believe. Yes, that's right, yep. So that was the one that was recommended to me after I bought a couple of bad reels of, you know, low-pass used tape. Um, I've got a reel of of 456 that doesn't have sticky shed syndrome, and it works great, um, but it's the the tape I've been using over and over and over again to, to get the machine working, so I wanted to have a couple of clean reels for clients coming in. So this recording the masters one just seemed to hit the right marks. I, I can't bias my machine for plus nine. It'll only bias for plus six or else it, it can no longer fully erase. Obviously it's an American machine. I just wonder whether they had, uh, the original designers had thought, you know, quantity tapes, um, ATR, obviously have taken that brand of tape on. Is Have you tried it with that tape formulation? The recording, the masters are my first foray into a brand new plus six tape on the machine. It's only been in the last handful of weeks that I've gotten the machine behaving to the point where I'm ready to, you know, put a fresh reel on there and, and get some, some bands working with it. So we've only had a couple of sessions with bands uh, and going back to your earlier question, one of those bands very much did want to mix on the console down to two tracks, no, keep it in analog as long as possible, analog summing. So there are those who want to go, you know, start to finish as analog as possible. What age was that band who wanted to do it fully or end-to-end analog? 
Oh, they looked like they were in their mid-30s. Oh, right. So they weren't... I was wondering if they're going to be, you know, your old rockers who remember tape as, as it was in the old days, or the young kids who sort of like, it's tape and kind of worshipping at the, at the tape machine altar. Um, ever considered any other tape machine manufacturer that you'd consider, or are you going to stick with MCI now? I'm going to stick with it for the time being. I've enjoyed so much learning about the company and the and the designs and the machine that I actually just invested in, in an MCI GH500 console uh, that I'm going to be pairing with the machine, so sort of offering a, an MCI house of sorts. I worked on the GH24 a while ago, and they had that 500 console as well, and they had another 110, so it was all like MCI all the way through, and there was an, I'd seen another couple of packages uh, that I don't know whether it was in the 70s or 80s that MCI sold the whole lot to, to studios, and they just like a one-stop turnkey solution and bought all the kit, but... Um, you know, you're you're kind of going back there to sort of marrying all the MCI bits up, which is good. But yeah, the the MCI uh, 500 series has a great layout. Um, the EQs are great. Uh, you can put put a cue together, mix really nicely. Um, and just looking forward to working on a larger format. We've been using a Toft ATB, which is a great console. We've liked using that a lot. But I think that working with tape and the you know having the patch bay and the the larger format is just going to be really great. We're, we're looking forward to commissioning that console. Well, I wish you every success with it, and I thank you very much, and I, I thank you for your time, Graham. It's been uh, it's great to talk about MCI. It's something I've learnt, uh, learnt about, and there's thing, things that you were mentioning about, you know, the dreaded red IC sockets, or just uh, the, the edge connectors and perhaps resoldering, which is what I found on the, on the 110. And I wish you every success in recording with your uh, J16, and uh, into the future. Thank you. Graham Studio, Rope Room, can be found in the U.S. city of Astoria in Oregon and on the web at www.roperoomstudio.com. I urge you to take a look at the website as you'll learn from the images why it's called the Rope Room and what an atmospheric place it must be to record music. And if you're a band or musician in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States and looking for somewhere to record to tape, I'm sure you'll receive a warm welcome from Graham and his colleagues. This brings a close to part two of our two-part feature on MCI tape machines. Be sure to take a listen to episode 18, which features Thomas Yearsley of Thunderbird Analog Studios, further down the west coast from Oregon in Oceanside, California, talking about his machines. And whilst you're at it, please do all the subscribing stuff too. For the podcast, that's wherever you get your pods. Or if you're listening to this via the YouTube version, then via the subscribe button. I've heard people on their video asking for you to smash, bash and crash that subscribe button, but I'm British, so I'm simply going to ask you to treat that button as you would the play button on any tape machine and simply press it. Well, click on it. Don't forget to see the other YouTube videos on the channel. Search for Real Resilience on YouTube and I will add more as and when. Also, the upcoming webinar, The What, Why and How of Tape. To book, go to eventbrite.co.uk and search for Real to Real or Open Real and keep those as all one word and that should find it. Press Play, the Real Resilience podcast dedicated to all things Real to Real. That's it. There is no more for this episode. Quarter inch to two inch, five inch to ten and a half inch, 1800 to 2400 feet. It's not the width, diameter or length that counts with tape. Yes, really. It's what you record on it. So until the next time, I hope, like me, you will keep it real.